Jude 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So a few weeks ago, we looked at verse 3, specifically what it is that Jude is calling us to contend for. What is it that is so precious that we must preserve it and protect it and serve it? And Jude says that it is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you recall, when he's talking about the faith, he's talking about the body of doctrine, the, the content of what we believe. Who is God? Who is Christ? Who are we in Christ? What does it mean to live a righteous life? The content of our faith. How many of you know that doctrine matters? Sound teaching, right thinking about God and holiness, those things matter. And I say that they matter because I need you to consider that if you have the wrong view of God, then you, if you have a wrong thinking about who God is as He has been revealed in the Scripture through the Son, then technically you are serving another God not the God of the Bible. You are serving a God that you have created for yourself, a little g God, an idol. So doctrine and teaching, they matter. One faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The book is closed. There are no additions or subtractions. Jude is saying that we must be careful, we must be vigilant to protect and defend the sound teaching and the authority of Scripture. And I put those two together, sound teaching and authority of Scripture, because there are people who will say, oh yeah, the Bible is true, but it's not authoritative. You don't have to do what it says. It was written for a different place in a different time. You can get to interpret it however you want and just take the feels from it and live however you want. And that's not, that's not what Scripture teaches. There is authority in the Word of God over our lives. One faith, once for all delivered to the saints. That's the thrust of Jude's letter, to contend for the faith, that body of doctrine. I think it's interesting, when he starts out, he says, I, I was very eager to write to you celebrating our salvation. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. But it's necessary that I speak to you about something much more dark, much less reason for us to rejoice in our common salvation. In fact, this is something we should weep over, that there are people who have crept in. Ungodly people, and they pervert the grace of God. So we come to this, this command from, from Jude to contend, and that for me that throws up two questions. We're going to look at those two questions this morning. So back in verse 3, he says, I, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend 
for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is it that he's telling us to do? So that's my first question. What is it? What is it to contend? What must we do? Jude says to contend for the faith. What does he mean? Are we supposed to put up our fists and fight? Are we supposed to punch people who, who preach and teach false doctrine and live falsely and say, I'm a Christian, but I don't live like one? Are we supposed to go and, and violently attack them? Well, that's, that's ridiculous. No. The word contend in the Greek is epagonizomai, and you, you can almost hear the word agonize, the English word agonize in it. It means to agonize for the faith. It's a struggle to labor against something, usually with words. It's a debate. That's why the Lord tells us to be as cunning as serpents, because we must be able to defend the faith. Speaking truth to lies. I don't think anywhere that Jude is calling us to take up fists. That's not that kind of fighting. He wants us to defend the faith against the attack and even the, even the honest error of false teaching by engaging and correcting that error with the truth. This is where biblical processes like church discipline come into play. We, we, we have to be gracious and loving when we do these things. Now, there's a difference between the, the, the people who are just genuinely honest in their error. You know someone who makes an honest mistake, right? That, and, and it's hard to hold someone accountable for an honest mistake. There's a difference between people who are making an honest mistake. They, they're, they're speaking out of ignorance because they just haven't been taught correctly, or maybe they were taught incorrectly and they haven't been corrected yet. There's a difference between those people and then the ones that are just flat out refusing to, to the truth in favor of their lie, in favor of self-satisfaction in their lie. The Bible gives us a good example of the former one, the honest mistake in the book of Acts. If you look at chapter 18 in Acts, verse 24, we, we read about a man named Apollos who was a great teacher, great preacher. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scripture, so he knew the Word. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was excited about it. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace, that had, through grace and they had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Apollos was a gifted preacher, right? He loved the gospel. He loved Jesus. He loved the Lord. He was zealous for it. But he was teaching an old covenant theology under the baptism of John and not the new covenant theology under the baptism of Jesus. So Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they lovingly explained to him his error and they gave him the right doctrine. They showed him in the scripture. And you see that in, in the last verse 
showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. He was now able to refute the Jews in the t- correctly, showing that Jesus is the Christ according to the Scripture. No doubt when Priscilla and Aquila approached him and said, hey, Apollos, you, you're doing a great job, but you've got this wrong and you're leading people in error. No doubt he went back to the text of the Word and said, Let, show me. Holy Spirit, show me. I mean, they've, they've, they've laid it out for me. I need to see it. And I, I have no doubt the Holy Spirit allowed him to see it. And that's exactly what will happen to the person who is truly after the Word of God, but is just honestly in error. There's a difference between that person who loves the Lord and loves the Word of God and is just honestly in error, and then those who just flat out refuse to believe the truth. There are those who are willingly ignorant or willfully hostile towards the Word. And there's a difference between those guys and the ones who make mistakes. You know, I I personally, I I want to be challenged. I want people to challenge the way I think about things. It drives me to the Bible to, to search it out more carefully. There's a reason the Bible uses the language in Proverbs about iron sharpening iron. The only place that the iron gets sharp is where there's friction. Where there's contention. We, the, okay, the, someone needs to, con- I need to contend over this. Those people who know the truth and are willfully ignorant or willfully hostile toward the truth are a different story. They just refuse to accept truth when it's given to them. Like, I'm, I'm not going to believe that. I just won't. I can't. I won't believe that because I hold this other thing to be so dear. I cannot believe in a God who would send babies to hell. Or who would send anyone to hell, for that matter. They haven't read their word. They don't believe that God is a God of His word. And so they believe in another God. They don't like to receive correction. So they're not likely to receive correction when we do correct, if we do correct, but we have to try anyway. If not for the preservation of their souls, then for the preservation of the souls of the ones who would believe their false teaching and their false living. It's that second one that I believe that Jude is talking about. He's talking about contending for the faith against those who are willfully ignorant or and or willfully hostile towards the truth. Here in, in Jude, this is the only time that we see the language, this kind of language used in the New Testament. The paganizomai, you must contend for this. You must stand up for this. You must defend and preserve this. I find that this is a very important thing for us to understand it's an important doctrine for us to get. It's important teaching for us to, to submit ourselves to because how often do we just let things slide among the brethren? Not that we are to be judge and jury of anyone. God is the one that judges the heart. But that we are to be our brother's helper, that we are to protect the faith and protect the doctrine. In other areas of Christian experience, 
there is a dichotomy. God has said that His grace is sufficient. So, where I am weak, He demonstrates His perfect strength in that weakness. But here, where teaching and preaching and living the gospel message is concerned, where sound doctrine and right thinking are concerned, we must fight for them. How often does God say, you stand back and let me fight the battle? But here, Jude says, you must contend. We must, as Paul told the church at Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the schemes of the devil. It is interesting to me that this appears to be the only place in Scripture where we are told that we must do the defending, we must do the protecting, we must do the preserving. Where everywhere else, we're given the assurance that God fights for us. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. But the contending for the faith, contending for sound biblical doctrine, that is given to you and me to do. Which is why that leads me to my second question. Who then is to contend? I know what we're contending for. With whom are we to contend? I know what we're contending for, and that's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That must be defended. But who is involved in the struggle? The question has two sides, and it comes straight out of the word contend. Anytime that there is a contending going on, a contention between something, there are two sides. One side contends or defends one way, and the other side contends or defends the other way. If, if we were both in harmony, then there would be no contention. Anytime that there's a contention, there must be two sides of the equation. And so, who must contend for the faith? And who are we contending against? So in answering the first side of that equation, we must be engaged. Who must be engaged in the defense of the faith? The very first verse in Jude, he's writing to all of the brethren in Christ. Not just the pastors, not just the leaders, not just the missionaries or the theologians or the professors. Look what he says. He says in verse 1, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's all of us. That's every saint that has been reborn, regenerated in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. If you call yourself Christian and your life bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then Jude is talking to you. And we have a responsibility to sound doctrine. How can you claim to be a bondservant of Jesus if you are indifferent towards false teachings about Him? Just by way of example, let's say you have a friend and you hear a close friend and you hear someone saying, uh, ugly things about them, things that impugn their character and things that call into question their motives. And you know that what they're saying is false. That's false. That's not, that's not right. That's a lie about my friend. They, they falsely misrepresent your friend. And you hear these things, and what happens inside you? You, you get mad, right? Maybe even a righteous jealousy because you, you're jealous for the truth about your friend and you don't want these lies to be spread. You want to protect the truth about your friend? It is the same thing in Christ. 
You cannot claim to love Jesus Christ and not treasure the truth about Him or the truth that comes from Him. So we're all defenders of the faith. All right, that's, that's, question, that's part number one of that second question. Part two is who must we fight against? So look at verse 4. Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And that means that, that the Bible, don't, don't get tripped up there, that means that the Bible has already spoken of the condemnation or judgment that belongs to those who would be false teachers. And, and, and this is their condemnation, that they are ungodly people. That in itself is condemning. This is their condemnation, that they pervert the grace of God into, sexu- into sensuality. That in itself is condemning. This is condemnation, that they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So in a nutshell, what Jude is saying is that there are false teachers who have come into the church who are leading God's people away from the truth of who He is. Now, this isn't, this isn't a, a standalone warning in the Bible. This isn't stand in a vacuum. This little book is not an anomaly in the New Testament. If you look at 2 Peter, it's almost a line-for-line argument falling right along with what Jude is saying. And they were written about the same time. So apparently there was a big problem with, with false teaching and false doctrine in the church. The warnings are almost exactly parallel. False teaching then is a problem. It is now a problem, a very dangerous problem in the church. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 11. He said, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. I find it compelling and alarming also that there is so much language in the Bible about God keeping His people and preserving His people. I mean, there's so much language in the Bible about God preserving and keeping His people that we have a whole uh, biblical, we have a, well, I don't think it's quite biblical, we have a whole ideological doctrine built that says that once you're preserved, once you're saved, you are always saved. That's where the doctrine of the elect comes from. Now, don't, don't get, that, there's biblical basis for that, but there's also biblical basis that you, you can lay down that and you can turn away and walk away. There's examples of it in the Scripture. I'm just saying that there's so much language in the Bible about God preserving His elect that a doctrine has arisen that says once you're saved, there's nothing can rip you away. Paul says, who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Shall tribulation or persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, nothing can separate us from the love of the Lord. God told the prophet Isaiah, he said, Behold, I have you engraved on the palm of my hand. You are ever before me. He holds us in the palm of his hand. The beginning of Jude's letter, he's writing to those people who are kept in Christ. And when he ends his letter, he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Preserve yourselves by being kept in God's love. So much language and so much example in Scripture God holding us, God keeping us, God not letting us stumble. He preserves us in our suffering, does He not? In our struggle, He preserves us. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. He is strong when we are weak. He is abundance when we have lack. He is our peace in the middle of a storm, our joy and our suffering. Through our ups and downs and trials and triumphs, God keeps us. Amen. 
And yet, when it comes to false teaching, there's a bit of a different approach that the Scripture takes, a different tone that the Scripture takes. It's like when Paul, you know Paul, he lists out all these different kinds of sins, and he does it a few times. He'll list out all the, these different kinds of sins, you know, lying and stealing and drunkenness. And he's, you know, hey, don't, don't do those things, guys. That will condemn your soul, guys. Don't, don't do those things. You need to you steer clear of those things, right? Put those things behind you. But then when he talks about sexual immorality, boy, the language changes. He said, you better run from that one, buddy. Don't even let it touch you. Don't get near it. Flee from it. Get out of the town. Don't even, don't, because it seems that Paul has a different idea about how dangerous that particular sin is, how much it can corrupt the soul, and how tightly it can hold you. All sin is damning before God. But you get involved in sexual immorality, and it is so hard to pull yourself out of it. Though everyone come around you, and everyone grab you, and everyone hold on to you, you will lay down everything to follow that false god of pleasure. And Paul knows this. That's why he says, run from this. It's the same kind of thing going on with the warnings about false teaching. Isn't that astonishing to you? God keeps you. Steer clear of false teaching. Contend, fight over this. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, False Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So false teachers will arise, and then the alarm bells go off. Because they're like wolves among the sheep. They come in, they... they they present great danger in what is supposed to be a safe and protected area. Paul warns us in Acts 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, so wolves come in, the first part of that, the wolves will come in attacking the flock, not sparing the flock. This means that the wolves will, will shed blood. There will be bloodshed. Now, I don't, I don't mean literal bloodshed because it's not literal wolves, but that means that the wolves are going to sink their teeth into the necks of the sheep and drag them away. They, they'll, they'll get their clutches in them. They'll, they'll drag them away, twisting and perverting the gospel of God's grace pull the sheep away from the flock. So they just flat out abandon the gospel of Jesus. They snatch kids into their clutches of things like moral relativism, political correctness, unbiblical identities. They, they broadcast false teachings on television. You better watch what your kids are watching. They, they, they broadcast it on social media. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. In music, books and magazines, and we get entertained by the things that are so displeasing to God. When we first started in Jude, I, I told you that the gospel is under attack from the world. 
There is no shortage of competing religions and competing pleasures and false gods even today. Idolatry is not a thing of a thousand years ago. It is today. Here's the thing. In spite of all that, in spite of the, just the outright onslaught from the world on the gospel, the outright onslaught on sound doctrine, that's not even the most dangerous or deadly to those who are in Christ. If you spend any time, any amount of time in the Word of God, any amount of time in fellowship with God, going to church, you should be able to clearly recognize the blatant heresies. So, I mean, if someone were to come in here and stand in this pulpit and, and say praise to Allah or praise to Buddha, you would recognize that instantly as false. I, I don't think you'd be very easily deceived by that kind of teaching. It's clearly a false idol. It's the more subtle things that present the real danger. See, Paul continues in verse 30. He says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's stunning. From among your own selves. So the, the assault on sound teaching, the assault on the person of Christ and the work of Christ comes from within the body of Christ. Oh, God save us. Among your own selves will arise men. They've, they've risen in the ranks of the church. They're trusted by the people. They've been given positions and authority. They're allowed to counsel others and teach classes. And yet they speak perverse things. And Jude says these are the ones who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Look at this. Look at what Paul says. He says that they do this. These, these men who rise up and speak twisted things, they do this to draw the disciples away after them. Now, now, we're not just talking about followers. We're not just talking about bystanders and onlookers, you know, people on the periphery of the, of the body. We're talking about disciples. We're not talking about people who are mildly interested. These are disciples. Consider that Luke wrote the book of Acts as well as the gospel of Luke. He wrote both those tomes, right? And in both of those books, in Luke and Acts, he uses this word for disciple 68 times. I counted. All but three of them. So 65 of the 68 times, he is directly referring to disciples of Jesus Christ. Only three times does he use this word for disciple to refer to somebody else that's not a disciple of Jesus. And on those three times, he's very careful to point out he's talking about disciples of John the Baptist. So Luke is recounting the teaching of Paul and what, what's going on with Paul and what's happening with Paul. And, and he writes, as Paul is talking, he, he writes the disciples. He's talking about the converted who follow after Jesus. False teachers will draw the disciples away after them. It's alarming to me that one of the greatest threats that I face as a believer comes from within the church. Because false teachers within the church, you know, they, they know the language. They know the truth, but they pervert it. They give you enough of, of the truth to make it look like the truth, 
and entice you and draw you away from God. This is why we have such heresies like prosperity gospel and such heresies like um, love is love. This is the strategy of Satan to subtly deceive God's people into open idolatry. Speak lies to you that are disguised as the truth. They have enough truth in them. Your enemy wants to offer you a counterfeit gospel. Think about the Garden of Eden. What do you do in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, Satan slithers up to Eve and he says, Did God actually say to you, don't eat of that tree? Look at verse 2 in Genesis 3. It's crazy. Eve knew what the Lord had said. She knew what his commandment was. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And that's in quotes. She's quoting the word of God to the devil. Here's where it gets interesting. Here's why careful Bible study is important. You know, I told a group of ladies yesterday, same thing I've told you before, we go to the Bible to know who God is. And if we know who He is as revealed to us in His Word, what can shake us? But we must know Him, and not someone's version of Him. We must know Him as revealed to us by His own Word and not our own imagination of Him. Satan, the first false teacher, convinced Eve to believe a lie about God. And that was her downfall. Satan said, he answered her and said, you will not die. So now he's calling God a liar. And he gives the reason for, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve's thinking is that she'll physically die. But Satan tells her, no, God won't kill you because he knows that when you eat the tree, you'll have knowledge and knowledge, well, that's going to make you just like Him. And, and you won't die for that. Why would, you, why would you die for that? You want to be like God, don't you? Why would you ever die for that? And to a point, Satan was right. She didn't physically die. She would, however, die a spiritual death. Don't you think... Let me put it this way. Don't think for a minute that your enemy does not know more about God than you do. The devil can quote the scripture to you left and right and backward and forward, up and down, twice on Sundays, six ways from Sunday, however many euphemisms you want to put on it. He can do it. He knows it. He tried to use it against the Lord. Did he not? Satan twisted the grace of God into sensuality. And I say that because do, do you remember what God did for Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned? So he didn't kill them. But what he did do was he slayed an animal for them and put them, gave them clothes from the animal. It was the, the first atonement, sacrifice. 
Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In that moment, she believed a lie about God. That the God that she served didn't care about his own righteousness, didn't care about his own word. The God she served was no longer the one that was revealed to her through his word and by his word. This new God was a figment of her imagination, one who wasn't concerned with righteous obedience, one who wasn't concerned by the counsel of his own will. In an instant, she became an idolater and turned her love away from the God that created her and toward the God that she created. Is this not exactly what Jude warns us about? Twisting the grace of God, that amazing grace, into something as puerile as sensuality. Eve satisfied her fleshly desire, and she did it reasoning that God would be pleased. Look what the Bible says. She saw that the tree was good for food. Delight to the eyes. It was able to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. How many people convince themselves that they can follow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and still please God while doing it? It is a cancer in the body of Christ today. They take the Lord's message of love and they twist it ignoring his commandments so they can satisfy their own fleshly desires, all the while patting themselves on the back because they believe the lie that being true to oneself is also being true to God. Paul tells us that there's nothing good in myself. There's nothing good in you. Be true to Christ. Be true to who he is. Everything about you is a lie. Be true to who God is. So have you ever stopped to really consider what it is that's being dangled in front of you to entice you and draw you? And the question is, would you recognize it as forbidden fruit if you saw it? That's why we must study <laughs> to show ourselves approved. That's why we must defend and protect the faith. That's why sound doctrine matters. Satan's only real weapon against you is deception. Did you know that? And, and his most effective strategy against you is to deceive you with half-truths and almost-truths. We have got to be able to spot the counterfeits, church. A while back, I, I read a story of a bank teller, and I'll, I'll close with this. A bank teller, and the, she worked in the bank for many years, and someone once asked her, what kind of training that they had to go through in order to identify counterfeit money. And she said, well, well, none really at all. Because a bank teller, over the course of her career, handles so much of the real stuff, you can spot a fake at an instant. A Christian who is well-grounded in Scripture can spot a fake in an instant. The thing is, you have got to handle so much of the real thing, though. So many people are deceived. But, and I'm, I don't want to name, well, I guess I could, and I'll be gracious. 
there are, are preachers out there who will preach lifting a, a passage off the page, and because they're using Scripture, and that's exactly what they're doing, they're using Scripture. Because they're using Scripture, the people just soak it up and think, oh, that's a godly message. It has nothing to do about God. It's all about me. It's all about you, the individual, getting your destiny and walking into your purpose and you know, stepping in. They're always stepping into something, stepping into whatever. And it's false because they're using Scripture. And the people out there are none the wiser because they've not saturated their heart with the Bible. Oh, it is my prayer before God that I pastor a church full of Bible people. We are people of the Bible. And if I or any angel comes to you and tells you any other gospel, you mark him, you mark me, and you put me out. We must all take part in this struggle. That's what Jude calls us to. We must all be watchmen at the gate. That's our challenge and our warning from Scripture this morning. Not everyone that says to you, Lord, Lord, is sent from God. Not everyone that professes Christ is a Christian. Not, everyone, not every message that you hear or every teaching that you hear, not every sermon that you hear, not every song that you hear that says Jesus is the gospel. This is so important, I think, because there's such a stark contrast in the language of Scripture surrounding this warning about false teachers because they will deceive God's very elect. And all the language where the Bible says He keeps us and He holds us, there's this one. It will deceive the very elect. We must guard our hearts. This is alarming to me, and it should raise alarms in your souls as well. We must be vigilant. If ever there is a call to bury your head in the book, in the Bible, and to study it, and to know it, and get it written plainly on the table of your heart, this is it. I love you all. Let's pray and I'll get you out of here. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Once again, we thank you for your word. It is holy and righteous. Father, I ask that you let it set on our hearts with a renewed vigor, Lord, that we understand the need to be vigilant, both in our study of your word and our study of who you are, Lord, to get to know you better so that we can see and identify the counterfeit and avoid it to run from it and flee from it, like Paul says, to flee from sexual immorality. Father, help us to be right and true. Help us to walk the straight and narrow path, the hard path that leads to, to life. Lord, keep us and bless us and make your face to shine upon us as we leave here. Let us be salt and light in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.